0: Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew 28, 16 to 20. If you don't have them, you got one in the pew back in front of you, grab one. If you really don't have one, take it with you. I don't mean it's crammed in the back seat of your car somewhere and you forgot to bring it. You could use an extra one. I mean, if you don't have one, period, take that one with you. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. We made it. I can tell how excited you are. <laughs> Just wait. Not quite yet. Oh, We reached the end of the book of Matthew. Enough comments from the peanut gallery, alright? We started Matthew on December 10th, 2017. Uh, we've obviously taken a few breaks here and there. Uh, we, during the summer, we teach through the Psalms and things like that. So we, we do take a few breaks here and there. But this is the 129th sermon in the book of Matthew. And <laughs> I don't know if that quite clapping. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're still not done. Uh, so, just wait. Uh, the plan is, for the next few weeks, we're going to go do some Christmassy things. So we're going to talk about Jesus, why He came, that kind of stuff, like we normally do right around Christmas. Then, after Christmas, we're going to take some of the big themes of Matthew. We're not going to like necessarily review the book or anything like that, but just taking some of the big themes of Matthew and applying it directly to the church, in general, like the church global, but then also our church in particular. What, what things does Matthew actually teach? What things is the book of Matthew bringing to bear on us as a church body? I think that's important. And then after that, we'll be moving on to the next book that we'll be going through, which I'll tell you more about in January. But for now, let's take a look at this last passage here in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. All that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know better than any of us, there is more in this passage than we could teach in a thousand lifetimes. There is enough here in these few verses for us to glean millions of lessons over the course of our entire life. And here we take one Sunday to think through not only this passage, the conclusion of the book of Matthew, and all of the ramifications that are here for us. It's more than anyone could possibly do in one service. We pray for your help, for your spirit to empower these words, to penetrate deeply to our hearts, to help us to understand them and really wrestle with them. To bring conviction to us. To bring encouragement to us. To bring direction to us. To give us help just to understand the words that are here in front of us. We thank you for all the many things that you have revealed to us through your word over these last three and a half years. Four years. We pray that you would continue even now helping us to wrestle with your word giving us power by your spirit to obey what you have put before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The single biggest theme running through the book of Matthew is the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Right? We've seen that a thousand times if we've seen it once. Jesus is coming in, and he's establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And you remember, going all the way back to chapter 1, how does the very beginning of the book of Matthew open with that genealogy that so many people just go, yada, 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 Joseph, and Mary, and Jesus, right? You skip right past it, and don't even really give much thought to it, but there's that long genealogy that Matthew opens his gospel with. And what is that doing? We've learned a million times that he's establishing Jesus as king. He's told us that at the very outset of the gospel, and here at the very end of the gospel, he says, all authority has been given to me. So we know for sure Matthew's goal is to establish Jesus as king. But then what kind of king? Remember, the first part of chapter 1, genealogy. He's of the line of David. Second part of chapter 1, An angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So what chapter 1 is really telling us is what the kingdom of heaven is. If if the most important theme running through the Gospel of Matthew is establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth through Jesus, then chapter 1 is telling us what the kingdom of heaven actually is. Jesus is king and a group of people who are subject to him that are saved from their sins. Yes? Isn't that it? That's it. Here's the kingdom of heaven right there. It's people saved from their sins who submit to King Jesus. Period. That is the kingdom of heaven. People saved from their sins who submit to King Jesus. And so then, we go just a few chapters later, and we get to chapter 5, and Jesus starts preaching through the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' first real time to do a whole lot of preaching, and he starts with the Sermon on the Mount, and he opens up the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, and he starts to define what these people who are saved from their sins, who submit to him as king, what they actually look like, what their character looks like. And what does he say there? They're they're poor in spirit. They mourn. That means that they they weep over their own sin. They mourn over the sin in the world around them. As they submit to King Jesus, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Tons of other things that he lists there that are all really daunting for us. But as we saw last week, is that difficult for us to obey? I mean, if you're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and you're looking at the Beatitudes, which one of us are looking at poor in spirit, more and over, hunger and thirst for righteousness, meek? Which one of us are like, yeah, I'm really nailing those. I've got those pinned down. That defines me. If you look up me in a dictionary, you're going to see the Beatitudes. I, I mean, none of us. In fact, at the end of chapter 5, Jesus even says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anyone? Who's volunteering? Who's signing up for that? Well, what we find is that, and we even saw this last week, it's really difficult, it's impossible, for the wicked heart of man to submit to perfection. How could we possibly do that? The prophets are filled with telling us, You're wicked, you have a heart of stone, you have a, you're a stiff-necked people. I and mean, we're right there along with the Jews in the Old Testament not gladly submitting to Christ at all or gladly submitting to the Lord. We're stiff-necked just like the rest of them. And so it becomes really impossible for us to do what Jesus is telling us to do and be what Jesus is defining as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Well, well how do we do that? How do we actually become... What Jesus is telling us a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. But what we figure out is God has to do something. God has to act first. We can't do it. God has to act first. He has to actually change the hearts of his people from stone to flesh. That's the way the prophets say it. He's got to change their heart of stone out for a heart of flesh. He has to give them actual eyes to see. He has to open their eyes to see the truth of Christ. And it's not until he does that that they will ever submit to him gladly as king. That they will ever be free from their sin. It is not until God does that that we will ever submit to Christ. Or that we ever could. God has to act first in order for us to not only understand Jesus, not only be saved from our sins, but actually give us the faith that we that it takes to be saved. God has to do that in us, or we can't do it. But you have to remember when you sit down and read any book of the Bible, and I hope we've done this since the very beginning. I hope I've done this since the very beginning is you have to understand that the author of that book is taking you somewhere. He's leading you to a place. He wants you to understand something. He wants you to do something. He wants you to know something. He wants you to think through a whole bunch of things. He wants to make a point to you, the reader, to help you understand what is happening here. And what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is on a mission. He's actually building something, and he wants you to understand it, and he wants you to be a part of it. Matthew wants to make very clear what that mission is, and so we get right smack dab in the middle of the book of Matthew, and it's in chapter 16 that we find out what the purpose is. Go ahead and turn there to Matthew 16. Put, put your finger in 28, because we'll come back to it, but just turn to chapter 16, And when you get there, look at verse 13. Just a few chapters back, Matthew 16, verse 13. The disciples are, uh, or Jesus is asking the disciples who are there with him, what's the scuttlebutt? What are the rumors? What, What are people saying about me? Tell me what they Who they think that I am. And the disciples start going through all the rumors that they've heard out there. You notice them there in 16. Some of them say John the Baptist. Well, that's particularly important because John's dead. So if Jesus is John the Baptist, that means we think that you're a prophet resurrected from the dead. who, Who actually has his head glued back on, essentially. Not to be too crass, but that's... John was beheaded. Then some say Elijah... That's an extreme honor. Elijah, in some circles, was considered maybe to be the Messiah. He didn't die. He was taken up to heaven on a chariot of fire. So he's come back from heaven. A man sent from heaven. Here he is. Some say Jeremiah, who would have also been resurrected from the dead. A significant prophet in the Old Testament. So they give these names, and all of them are incredibly significant. And so what we understand is that people are responding positively in the area of Galilee, they're responding positively to Jesus' ministry, and they're all recognizing that this is more than just a preacher. This is more than just a man here that we're dealing with. This is someone that is actually sent from heaven. But then Jesus says, okay, so that's what people are saying about me. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And so what do the disciples say? Peter responds there in verse 16, you are the Christ the Son of the Living God. Now, no one can deny the works, right? They're seeing him walk on water, seeing him do all these amazing things. No one can deny the works, the miracles he's done all in front of them. Everyone recognizes this is a man from God, but the disciples only, and particularly Peter, recognizes there's something even more than the prophets that's standing here in front of us. And what is he calling? The Christ the Son of the living God. Now, if you were to take Christ and you were to look it up in a thesaurus, you know what a thesaurus is, gives you all the synonyms for things, right? You were to look Christ up in a thesaurus, what you would see there is Messiah. You would see anointed one. You would see king. Now, why is that significant? That Peter would come out with this confession right here in the book. When I say this is the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, I'm not just saying that because I've calculated the number of verses before and after, and this is right in the middle of it. It's the middle of the book of Matthew because of what Peter says and how Matthew has opened his Gospel. He started at the very beginning in chapter 1 telling you this is the king. And it's taken us up to this point in the middle of the book where Peter gets it. You're the king. I, I get it. I get it. You're the king. Matthew's saying, look, the people that follow Jesus most closely recognize that he was the king. No one had to tell them that. They saw what he did, and they recognized that he was sent from God, that he was here as the king, and that he had come to save his people from their sins. That's what the Messiah was going to do. So it's right in the middle of the book. All of this book has been building up to 1616 where Peter makes this confession. And then Jesus takes that confession, affirms it, and turns to the rest of the book and reveals his plan. Look at what he says in verse 17 all the way to verse 20. This builds to the last half of the book. Look what he says. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Shocker of all shockers, look at verse 20. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's about to change in our passage now, right? We understand that at this point in the gospel, they know that. They know that Jesus is from God. They know he's the Messiah. They know he's the king. But they don't have a whole lot more information than that. And so they don't know it all. Second, God is going to declare Jesus as his son through the resurrection. He's going to vindicate him. Then they're going to have all the requisite information and they're going to go out and tell. But here in this, these few verses, Jesus is pointing to what the aim of this book really is. It's not just to establish him as king and establish his people. He's revealing his plan. And what's his plan? His plan is to build his church. That's the plan. The big reveal in Matthew, right there in 16, starting in verse 17, is Jesus says, I am going to build my church. Here it is. And we learn several things about it. In fact, there's at least five things in here that are significant that we learn in this passage. Stay with me. First, we see in this passage... That this church is not built on flesh and blood, but on the Father in heaven, revealing the nature of Jesus to his people. Right? So that's first out of the gate. How does Peter even come to the knowledge that this is Jesus so that he might be saved, that he might submit to Jesus as king, that he might follow him even to death? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My Father has revealed it to you. That's how it came about. That's how, that's the foundation on which the church is going to be built. The revelation from God to people. He is going to go through and open the eyes of people to see the truth of Jesus. Second, it's built, this church is going to be built on... Christ as the cornerstone, and Peter and the rest of the disciples who believe in Jesus. Right? So this church is not only going to be built by God opening the eyes of the blind, but it's also going to be built on Peter and the rest of the apostles going out and preaching this message and sharing it. And then we, 2,000 years later, reading the words of these apostles and submitting to them. Right? The church is built on the foundation of Christ as the cornerstone and the disciples as uh, a foundation. Third, with this message about Jesus, the disciples and the church that they establish are going to charge the gates of hell and people are going to be saved at their teaching. You get that? You see that there? He says the gates of hell are not going to be able to stand against it. Meaning that the disciples of Christ are going to receive this understanding of who Christ is. They're going to submit to him as king. They're going to be forgiven of sin. They're going to turn and they're going to charge the grave. The people that are held under death's sway and they're going to say you don't have to go to hell. You can be saved by believing in Jesus He is your Savior. And what's going to happen is the gates of hell are not going to be able to stand against it. They're going to give way. And people are going to hear the preaching of the gospel. They're going to believe. And they're going to come to faith in Christ. Fourth, that same local church is going to become an embassy of the kingdom of God. Of the kingdom of heaven. Meaning that they're going to be able, as a collective body, to reflect the will of heaven. Now there's a lot when it comes to binding and loosing and understanding that whole passage that he says there. And I would encourage you to go back to those sermons to hear what we talked about there, both there and in 18, 15 to 20, he says the same thing. And so, go back there, we kind of hashed all those things out, I'm not going to hash them all out here. But suffice it to say, the church is going to become an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. We're not creating passports, we're validating them. When you say, I'm a believer in Jesus, we say, how do we know? We ask every candidate that comes in for membership, how do we know that you're a Christian? To which they tell us what they believe about Jesus... They demonstrate fruit that's in their life, fruit of repentance. We vote on that as a church. In the event that someone refuses to repent and shows fruit that they belong to another kingdom, the kingdom of the world, we're to make that clear too, he says. So they become an embassy. And fifth, he says here, don't tell a soul about me. Well, that changes, obviously, here. We're in the final passage of the book. You can turn back to chapter 28. And so what we see here is that this right year, as Jesus is commissioning his disciples, is really the end of the beginning of the story. It's just, just getting started here. Jesus has been crucified. He paid the penalty of sins for his people. He has risen from the dead. He has been vindicated as the Christ by God the Father. And now he is charging his disciples with the key change from what he told them back in 16. Don't tell a soul about me. Now he's saying, tell everyone about. Now that I've been vindicated, now that authority has been given to me, now tell everyone. So the charge that he's giving to them is a command also to us. How do we know? Well, he doesn't turn to us, does he? He's talking to a group of disciples. But he, he, he does tell them that they are to teach others to observe all that he has commanded them. If he's commanded them to go, and they're to teach others to observe what he's commanded them, what does that mean for you? So this command here, to go, to make disciples, is a command not just for the disciples, but for us as well. If we are following them and their witness and their testimony. So this great commission is both to them and ultimately to his entire body, the church. And there's three things that I want you to see out of this passage. There is 150,000 things that we could potentially talk about this morning in this passage. And we're only going to narrow it down to three of them. All right. So just bear with me. But first, and it's, it's three implications of what this means for the church. What do we do in light of the good news of the resurrection? What is it we do as a church? First, a church must bring the good news of Christ to people. church must bring the good news of Christ to people. Look at verses 18 and 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's a shame that in hearing the Great Commission taught, verse 18 is given such little attention. Most of it goes to the go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing them, all of those things. And mostly people will skip over verse 18. But there Jesus states pretty emphatically, all authority in heaven and on earth Has been given to me. Now, that's the foundation of the whole thing, all right? And this has come up many times in Matthew. Jesus saying that he was about to get authority, he's about to gain authority. Now, the reason why that's important is that this is supposed to bring to mind Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Remember there in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, Daniel sees a vision in the night and he says this I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, this is the sixth time in this gospel that Jesus has made some kind of reference to Daniel 7. Do you think that Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is really important? If this makes the sixth time that he has made some sort of veiled reference to it? Remember the last, most recent time was in Matthew 26, 64, where he's standing before Caiaphas. Caiaphas charges him, Tell us if you are the Son of God. And Jesus says, You have said so, and from now on you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Caiaphas immediately understands that as blasphemy. Why? Because of this scene right here. Did you read it? Did you see it? Here's the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and there he receives what? Dominion and power and authority And a kingdom that will not pass away, that has no end, that will not be destroyed. And Caiaphas immediately understands that as blasphemy. But what Jesus is telling Caiaphas, you're going to take my life, but you're going to give to me your crown. The Ancient of Days is about to take it away from you. And he's going to give it to me. So when Jesus stands before his disciples and he says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He might as well say, Daniel 7 13 and 14, fulfilled. It's done. It's mine. Remember just a few passages earlier, the Roman guards put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a scarlet robe on him. They put a reed in his right hand and they knelt before him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. Remember, they did that to mock Jesus. But you have to understand, they're doing what they don't understand. They're actually giving him the kind of kingdom he came to get. Because go back to Matthew 1. What kind of kingdom did he actually come to get? One where he saves his people from their sins. Not one where he sits on a throne initially, but one where he takes a throne of wood and is nailed to it so that he might pay the penalty for their sins. That's the kind of kingdom that he came to get. So they're giving him what he came for, and they don't know it. He came to be the true king of the Jews. Now, of course, there weren't many that understood how he was going to gain his throne, They thought it might be politically that he was going to come in, that he was going to kick out Rome, that he was going to take over in the land. They thought this even after his death and his resurrection. They held him under the grave so that the disciples wouldn't steal the body. They held him until the third day, until the third overtime. And then they gave up the lead. It's a little worse than Auburn. Sorry to all the Auburn fans. (laughs) Sometimes you just can't help it. Um, Three days later, he rises from the dead, and he confirms to his disciples, right here in this passage, that in fact, the Ancient of Days, God the Father has handed him authority to gather his people from all nations. That's what he's telling them. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is why I think that's important. The gospel message that we're proclaiming is not an invitation to a party. I need you to hear that. The gospel that we're proclaiming is not an invitation to a party. That's the way we often think of it it's an invitation to a party. You're invited to join in the invitation to to the to the party. Well, what happens when people turn down our invitation? We get sad. We think, well, if if people turn if enough people turn down the invitation to the party, then the party might be canceled. See, parties are contingent upon people's acceptance of the invitation. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is news. It's news. It's a proclamation. It's news of the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. That it's a historical event in history and that his reign as king at the right hand of God, his authority in the heavens, is something that is going on at this very moment. That is what we're sharing. We're imparting news to a people. And so when we tell them the gospel, we're telling them the good news, and we're telling them, you might want to alter your life in light of this news. That's what the gospel is. Do you remember the name Hero Onoda? You all know that name. Familiar name? Hero Onoda? Never heard this name? Let me read to you a news article about Mr. Onoda. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but it really doesn't matter. Listen to this. In 1944, Onoda was sent to the small island of Lubang in the western Philippines to spy on U.S. forces in the area. 1944. What's going on at the time? World War II. He goes to the Philippines to spy on the U.S. forces in the area from Japan. Allied forces defeated the Japanese Imperial Army in the Philippines in the latter stages of the war, but Onoda, a lieutenant, evaded capture. While most of the Japanese troops on the island withdrew or surrendered in the face of the oncoming American forces, Onoda and a few fellow holdouts hid in the jungles, dismissing messages saying the war was over for 29 years. He hid out in the jungles all the messages that came to him that said the war's over. He thought it was propaganda. Hit him away. He survived on food gathered from the jungle or stolen from local farmers. After losing his comrades to various circumstances, Onoda was eventually persuaded to come out of hiding in 1974. He thought he was fighting World War II the entire time. His former commanding officer traveled to Lubang to see him and tell him he was released from his military duties. Thank goodness the general was still alive. In his battered old army uniform, Onoda handed over his sword nearly 30 years after Japan surrendered. Now, we hear that story and we think, that's crazy. But brothers and sisters, the world is suffering from hero Onoda syndrome. This is what the gospel message is designed to inform them about. They war over their gods in the political arena. And they fight day and night, tooth and nail. But the gospel that we're proclaiming is not an invitation to a party. It's a proclamation that the war is over and Christ has won. The implication that's on them is hand over your sword and your uniform. There's no sense in fighting anymore. It's already been won. Death has been conquered. It's over. Now what you should do is not only lay down your arms, but you should submit to Christ the victor of the battle. I think there's a boldness that comes with that knowledge. See, we want a guarantee of success. We want to know that we're going to be successful. But the disciples are, who are receiving this commission here in Galilee... They don't have a guarantee of success in the world's standards. They have a guarantee that it's already been won. Now that may mean death for them, but you understand that some of them don't even know what they're looking at. Look at verse 17. Some of them doubted. They're looking at Jesus resurrected in front of them and still some of them are doubting that what they're seeing is real. We want assurance that people are going to respond positively to the message. That just like Mr. Onoda, when they receive this message that they're going to hand over their sword, that they're going to turn in their uniform, that they're going to submit to Jesus. But the reality is that they might reject us, they might stab us, they might shoot us figuratively or Even literally, success in the world standard is not a guarantee, but it doesn't change the news, you understand. It doesn't change the reality of what's actually happened. The good news of the gospel isn't contingent upon any one person's belief. The church has to bring this news to the world, to the people. He has to go. Second, a church must teach them to follow Christ. Look at what he says in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The church, in other words, cannot lead people to Jesus and then leave them to fend for themselves. You can't lead them to Jesus and then leave them to fend for themselves. Imagine what would happen if all of the world's parents, all of the Christian parents, failed to train up their children in this faith. You don't have to wonder because it's happening right now. I want you to think about this for just a second. I often have parents tell me their kids are Christians. But then when it comes to the parent actually teaching the kid what the church is, they stop. Well, my kids are Christian. And you know what? They're telling me they just don't like the place. They don't, they get bored pretty easily. Now, set aside the fact that a lot of times kids will tell parents they're Christians because that's what the parent expects them to tell them, even though they're further the away from Jesus than than anybody. But let's assume the kid is telling the truth, and let's say that it really is true. Parent, your job is to teach them what it means to be a member of a local body. What it means to be a member of the church. This place, this local association of believers, Christ bought with His blood. He established, and He put it here in Tuscaloosa. And he gave it a mission to make disciples. It is your job to teach your child who claims that they are a Christian what it means to be a part of that local body. But imagine what it would be like if we just led them to Christ. And then once they got there, we just said, Oh, well, you don't like it. Well, let's go where you like it. Let's go where your friends are. You understand that what we come together to, to be is not a people who have prior associations of friendship. We come together and build our friendship on top of the foundation of Christ and the apostles. Do you get that? That's what the church is. We are a group of people who have no reason to be together except for the fact that Christ died for us. The sheetrock had no relationship to the stud before they were nailed together. You understand. Now, you got to get to know one another. What happens? The inmates begin to run the asylum. Because we bring them to Christ, and then we leave them to fend for themselves. We don't actually teach them what the local church actually is. Imagine what would happen if we refuse this step of discipleship. Let's be sure we understand what Jesus is talking about here. What he's actually telling his disciples. That they need to make disciples. The, the word means to make a student or a pupil. So our call is not merely to bring people to a confessional stage where they confess Jesus as Lord. But we actually have the responsibility to teach them to observe all that He has commanded us. We have to make them students of Jesus. We have to give them the tools to read God's Word. We have to give them the tools to obey God's Word. We have to grow them up and mature them as, as professing followers of Jesus Christ. We're not here to produce immature babies, but we're to bring them up into the life of the church and mature them in faith. This is where that happens. The local church is a laboratory of growth, a laboratory of discipleship. And how does that happen? Well, the passage we read earlier out of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's the preaching and teaching of the Word. Now, we think it might be programs like, oh, man, I used to have this one program we used to go to all the time and we loved it. Every church has those. They don't do anymore. Or new programs that are coming along that promise great and grand things. Here's the reality. Paul lays it out for us. It's the teaching and preaching of his word. The word is what shapes. The word is what corrects. The word is what teaches you and trains you in righteousness. The word is what prepares you for good works. The word is what produces mature adults in Christ and not immature babies. We bring them into the life of the church and submit them to the teaching of the word. Now this is the part where everyone starts to get nervous. Okay. So I've shared the gospel. I had to whew, swallow my pride there. I had to really work up the courage to share the gospel. And now this person has come to Christ and you want me to teach him too? Don't you understand? I can't teach. I don't have a teaching bone in my body. But notice what he says in verse 20. Teaching them what? To observe You're not simply teaching them what He has commanded them. You're teaching them to observe it. They're watching you. You're teaching them to observe it. It doesn't seem that Jesus' intention for His apostles is to simply give them a list of all the things that Jesus said. Here, just, just lay out all the things that Jesus said. His intention was to show and tell not just tell, but show and tell. Open up the Word of God, read it with Him, and help them to understand it. But then, show them how it impacts your daily walk with Christ. Friends, this is life on life. To make disciples as Jesus is commanding us, we have to bring people close enough to us to see that this news that has come to us has actually changed the way we respond to our wife to our friend, to our neighbors, to our kids, to our spouse, to our family members. This news changes everything about the way I relate to people around me. It changes what I watch on TV. It changes the kinds of movies that I see. They're going to look at you like you're weird. Well, that's really strange. Why do you do that? And you're going to explain it to him. That's part of teaching them to observe all that he has commanded you. This is life on life. It's not just you teaching the word to them. It's you showing them how it impacts you. They have to come close enough to see that for you it's not fake news. This is real. And it has an impact on your life. A church has to teach them how to follow Christ. And finally, a church has to send them out for Christ. Jesus doesn't say specifically, when you make these disciples, then send them out. But obviously it stands to reason, as I said earlier, if they're to make disciples, and then they're to teach others to observe all that he has commanded them, then those people are also then to go out and make disciples. And you and I are evidence that somebody somewhere along the way did this every single one of us, it might have been a parent, it might have been a friend, it might have been a coworker, it might have been any number of people, we're evidence that somebody was faithful enough to the gospel to go tell you the news and train you in how to not only read the word, but also how to be corrected by it and how to grow in it and how to observe all that he has commanded us. Paul tells Timothy, who is a disciple of his, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, that Second Timothy 2:2. Two, two. It's designed to be a repeating cycle of making disciples. There's a fundamental principle that's being recognized when churches are filled with people living their lives to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The fundamental premise is this. you ready? I am not my own. I belong to God. That's the fundamental premise that we're doing as we are sent out, as we go to make disciples, as we swallow that pride, as we have that bubble in the gut that just feels really awkward to tell somebody the gospel of Jesus, the, the hurdle that we have to get over to teach them to observe. When they look at our life and they see the sin that's there, that hurdle that we have to climb over to get that when we sometimes look like hypocrites and frauds we're saying I am not my own I belong to God do you want to know how it is that we can say a church is dying you know when it is that we can say officially a church is dying has nothing to do with money has zero to do with money. It has nothing to do with buildings. Really even has nothing to do with debt. When you see a people who believe they are Christians, but who do not share the gospel, and who have no one in their lives with whom they are teaching to observe all that he has commanded them, the church is dying. That's all it takes. So you think, hey, we come here, we worship God together. There is a mission that He has put you on. And that is teaching others to observe all that He has commanded them. That is imparting the gospel to people who currently do not believe That's what it takes to have a dying church, is to just stop. Obligation is on us to go. Who are you telling? See, mostly when you get to a church that's dying, typically what you find is there are a lot of uh, cantankerous individuals Typically, they should cause you no worry. You know why? Because usually those are not the ones that are discipling anyone. They're typically not the ones that are sharing the gospel with anyone. Now, they are putting comments in the offering plate. They are doing that. Or they're using the offering box as a suggestion box. They are doing that. But typically, after that happens... They don't make a disciple of anyone. So what happens when they die? Their cantankerosity, I just made that word up, dies with them. They make disciples of no one. How do you evaluate a Christian? Well, you say you're a believer, but you tell no one and you teach no one. So I don't know what you mean when you say believer because that's not consistent with Christian belief as it's been expressed for 2,000 years. It has not just been doctrine. It has been practice. So then what does this mean for us? Christian, if you do believe the gospel, if you believe... That Jesus died for your sins. That he paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. Tell someone. Open up your mouth and tell someone. You see an empty spot in the pew next to you? That is a spot that is to be filled by the person that you are discipling. It's your objective. This is the Great Commission. This is what Jesus put us on. Fight for your local church. It is so common in this world to feel like you just hate things that are going on around you so you get up and leave. And then you go to the next church where you expect everyone else around you to go share the gospel, but you still don't do anything there. The only reason that church is big and nice and has all these things, does all this going everywhere is because the people around you are sharing the gospel. Otherwise, it too would be a dying church. Disciples are grown and they're sent in the church. So bring them in to a laboratory of growth where they can hear the word preached where they can see it read where they can sing it aloud the obligation is on each and every one of us go and tell the good news let's pray heavenly father I pray for boldness. You know as well as I do that passage is to me as much as it is to anyone else in this room. I pray for boldness for each and every one of us that we would go and tell, that we would make disciples. I pray for fruit that as the word is here taught, preached, shared, understood, as we grow under it, as we sing it, as we pray it, as we read it, I pray for fruit. That people would hear the news that Christ has died and has rose again from the dead. They would believe. They would receive life eternal. Repent of their sins. Be baptized. That our church would then not leave them and abandon them. But come alongside them and disciple them and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. Give us the boldness to do that. Let that be our mission. Let that be what we fight over and fight for. Let that be what we strive for. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.